The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. In tune, Webster Groves. I'm talking on a new microphone, Ellie. I know, I can tell. You sound so... Um, Distant. <laughs> this is Arnold Stricker with... Broadcaster. That's what you are. So broadcasty. I sound broadcasty. You do. You've got that deep broadcast voice. You're listening to the... In tune. In, in tune voice of Ellie Wharton at that <laughs> point. No, I just have the same old voice. So, hey, I've got this new microphone that um, Chris and Sean put up here. It looks good, too. It it's does. It's one of those real Think, professional. It does look professional. But you haven't told people who you are. Oh, I did. I did. Oh, did you? I said, this is in tune, and I said, I'm Arnold Stricker with... Oh, okay. I'm Ellie Wharton. Because she was too busy talking about her voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. Hey, and if you know it's in tune time, you know what the weather's going to be like outside. It's going to be, be gray and cold. <laughs> I was going to say, it's going to be bright and sunny. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was sunny. I know. This has been a crazy week, hasn't it? You know, when the sun came out this week, it was like, oh. It was like... I know. You but, take this nice, big, refreshing sigh. Yeah, because we have had, let's see, this week we have had sun, rain, snow, cloud, cold, warm. It's just been a mess. <laughs> and that was just that was just Monday through Thursday. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, that was just yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much just yesterday, wasn't it? It was weird. It was yeah, weird. the weather has been strange. My friends, though, up north, I will let you know. I have friends up in Detroit, and they told me it is bitter, bitter cold up there. Oh, they there. can keep it up there. Yeah, it's it's pretty cold up there. So we have nothing really to complain about. But we're Webster Grove, so if we could come up with something to complain about, <laughs> we're going to make it happen. That's for sure. Hey, in tune's a two-hour weekly broadcast, which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community and the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. And from the Return to Civility book, I thought today's was interesting because this is the 341st day of the year. Oh, man. And it says, use humor appropriately and with consideration. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I, you know, and, and it might even be pointed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's what I mean, because it's like, okay, well, you know, Mr. Humor here. Mr. Humor. Uh, it, it says, all great comedians understand their audience first. If your goal is to get a laugh, understanding what your audience thinks is appropriate is a must. Well, there you go. See, that's correct. Uh, now, is, there, is there a statement in there for people that can only rap one bar? No. No. I, I think there should be a day for that. Wait, maybe that's leap year. <laughs> yeah, it's that. the 366th day. That's right, exactly. No, I want to give our listeners a little plan for what we're going to talk about. Uh, in the second hour, since this is December 7th, there is this is a Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. Yes, actually, and for me, my, one of my ex-husbands is his birthday. Okay. And I have a nephew, my firstborn nephew. All right. Today is his birthday. So it's a birthday celebration it day is. also. It is. Yes, it, it always has been. And we've always made kind of jokes about those two, you know, 
years apart, of course, having their birthday on the same day, the same day, because because my ex-husband was actually born the year after Pearl Harbor. Oh, wow. So wow. he still remembers it. <laughs> yeah, like it was yesterday. Like it was yesterday. No, in the second hour, we're going to be talking about the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, we will have as a guest uh, John McManus. And John McManus is an award-winning professor, author, and military historian. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. And before you go saying, well, he's just from Missouri. Yeah, he's a St. Louis native. This guy is a, uh, a commentator for CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, the Military Channel, Disney uh, Discovery Channel, the National Geographic Channel, Netflix, the Smithsonian Network, the History Channel, and PBS. So he is a big deal. he's just from Missouri. He's just from Missouri, <laughs> just from right. St. Louis. Just from St. Louis. And he is an author of, uh, what, a dozen books and another one coming out. So we'll talk with him in the second hour. In the first hour here, what we're going to do is give you some updates to some things that we've talked about and some additions. And also kind of prep you into, uh, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to prep you into Pearl Harbor and what happened uh, on that day. I think we should also talk about what didn't happen. What (laughs) didn't happen. What didn't happen. Yes, because what didn't happen is what led to what did happen. Yes. And that's, you know, as I was kind of studying this, I was like, you know, I never remember hearing this when I was in school. That is that diluted history that we are being taught. Well, one of the reasons why we do talk about historical things on this show, I know a lot of people do like it, history. A lot of people don't like history, but it's no matter whether you like it or not, if you don't study it, you end up going down that same path. And it is a rabbit hole that will continue and continue and continue. You called it a rabbit hole. I was going to call it a black hole. Well, it's something else. Because it like you know, sucks in it and does, destroys it things. It does. You know, it, and I was just reading, I was just watching a video this week on the Vince Foster case. Now, those of us who are old enough to remember Vince Foster, um, he was uh, something, an attorney. He was an attorney with Hillary Clinton. With Hillary Clinton. And he uh, mysteriously ended up dead. And it was claimed a suicide, although all the evidence shown was erroneous, I think, when you really stop to think about all of the evidence. It was extremely questionable, even to the point of, you know, uh, 60 Minutes, really going after the reporter who was reporting all of the the situation. I mean, they they just pounded him and pounded him and pounded him. But what was interesting to me was that after the special prosecutor who was uh, the special prosecutor at the moment, he left... The day before they brought in Kenneth Starr to be the special prosecutor in that case, in 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 some case. Was it Whitewater? Whitewater. <laughs> My <laughs> mind went blank there with Whitewater. And then they bring in Ken Starr, and he brings in two attorneys. One of those attorneys was bum, 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 bum. Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> That's right. Seriously. Brett Kavanaugh. So, what do we say about that? I think that's a coincidence. Is that a coincidence? But it just shows you how people pay their dues sometimes decades in advance. Well, and and what it shows me is that this is a very, I don't want to say closed network, but it is a very, like if you're getting involved in Washington politics, you're 
you're either going for the long haul or you're just there to blow in and blow out. That's right. With that one, when you, when I was like shocked because at first when I was watching the video and they said Brett Kavanaugh, I was like, oh no, it couldn't be the same Brett Kavanaugh. But then they showed pictures and it was the same Brett Kavanaugh. And I thought, wow, okay, back then, and, and remember how, you know, when he was being nominated, there was this big thing about him talking about the Hillary, the Clinton era and stuff like that. Well, he was a part of, he should have recused himself a long time ago, you know? We got a lot of people that need to recuse themselves. Well, and there's that's the interrelationship amongst the political elite. That's right. Like exactly like today, you know, we just finished mourning um, George H. W. Bush, and a lot of brouhaha, a lot of talk and everything. So now today, who's the first person they're looking at to be the attorney general, the new attorney general? Somebody who was attorney general under George H. W. Bush. I tell you the truth. What a coincidence. Well, and he, you know, sometimes it's, it's, um, I would say this, positions find you, you don't go looking for them. That is not true because you came here asking us to do this show. <laughs> I almost <laughs> choked on my water. <laughs> I almost spit it all over you, Ellie. <laughs> that... Ellie, you came begging me, asking me to do this show. <laughs> It is very true. I'm sorry. I just had to, I had to throw You caught it. me with the water I know, in my I mouth. I know. I know the water. I mean, because now you have given up the water bottle. I've given up plastic. That is very true. He came in here in this absolutely lovely, lovely water bottle. Lovely aluminized wait, wait, vessel. Wait, wait, wait. Do you notice at the top of it is green? <laughs> there's dragonflies there's on it. Dragonflies. There's dragonflies. There's bamboo. It looks like bamboo, right? Um, is there a lotus flower on there? Anything no, like sure that? I'm sure not. They okay. ran out of ink. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a beautiful one. But that goes right in line. As a matter of fact, do you know how many people I told this week not to recycle napkins? And every one of them was shocked when I told them that. Well, see, you're you're helping educate our community based upon our conversation. And if you missed our conversation last week, folks. It will be posted on SoundCloud and iTunes, but we talked to um, the uh, city about this. That was Todd Todd Ray. Ray. Yes, Todd Ray. And now I've made it a point. Just this morning, I was getting ready to throw away um, a, a some juice, a juice bottle. I know where you're going. And I rinsed it out. And instead of me rinsing it out and just throwing it away, I put it in the dish drainer so that it could dry. That's right. I put mine on top of the microwave, and so the, it air dries out. And every time I got something that was done, I was like thinking, when in doubt, put it in your purse. <laughs> throw <laughs> oh, it out. That's right. Throw it out. That's right. When in doubt, throw it out. I, I see. I still have to get beyond the when in doubt, put it in my purse. <laughs> because well, at the end of the week, my purse is really in bad shape. Well, and you know, Webster Groves is not the only one talking about this recycling. Kirkwood had talked about it, but now Rock Hill's getting into the well, act. Well, of course. That's because, you know, the greater the greater Webster Groves metropolitan area <laughs> that, we, that we are. Well, I'm... Yeah. We have now started a trend and everybody wants to fall in line and then they want to act like they didn't hear it first on KWRHLP. Well, it's like I'm sure Maplewood and Brentwood, all of St. Louis, actually all of the country, on if they're single stream recycling, is going to be talking about this. As a matter of fact, I saw a little video that said, stop recycling. Uh, what? Re-educate yourself. Oh. To recycle better. 
that you know i really will tell you that that was a very significant interview last week because it did it, it immediately changed my habits it immediately changed mine you know and hopefully those of our listeners who heard it will not only just use it for their own edif- edification but that they will turn around and tell others about it as well we've got to be that kind of community where we talk about the positive things along with the negative things right so you know rock hills uh, they're being urged to quote, clean up their recycling acts or face having their items tossed in the trash, okay? And the waste hauler is really asking the residents to do this because of some similar things. Like if you throw uh, a plastic bottle with a little bit of water in your recycling and you've got everything else is clean and then it goes into the recycling truck, they're still smashing it. So if it smashes the water bottle that has a little water in it, then water gets all over everything and contaminates it and they have to take it to the dump anyway. So all of the... Uh, good-natured thoughts and efforts are just kind of going to the dump or, excuse me, to the, um, what do we call that? The landfill. The landfill. I, I shouldn't call it's it the still, dump. No, it's the dump. It's the dump. <laughs> okay. You go over there and stand around and guess what? It's a dump. It's a dump. So they said that it, cardboard's the second most profitable item in single-stream recycling, but when you put water on it, it turns to oatmeal. Now, I wouldn't want to eat it. <laughs> I was going to say, wait a second. I wonder if it's cinnamon and sugar. Cinnamon and, cinnamon and sugar, of course. So things are in single streams, recycling's in jeopardy because people are getting a little uh, lazy. Lazy and loose. And they're, and they're not being as, um, what, I would, what I would say, they're not being as thoughtful and uh, cognizant of how this stuff ends up. So if they were on the end, if they were receiving all of this stuff, and saw what was going on, they might change their habits much more quickly and really become advocates for uh, really doing single-stream recycling much better. Well, I think this could be a, a case that we could really ch- you know, put up on our Facebook page and on our website Absolutely. to continue to remind people of the proper way to recycle. Um, once you've learned certain things, it almost becomes uh, just, it's, it's a part of what you should do. Correct. You know, it's just like me. I know that I should should not put my plastic water bottle in there with water in it. If I continue now that I know and I continue to do it, then I'm just an idiot. There's, some, there's something <laughs> yeah. wrong with you. Yeah, I'm just an idiot. Or you're deliberately doing it. Right, because why would I call myself and I'm making myself feel good? Oh, I'm recycling, but I'm really not. No. And as a matter of fact, what I'm really doing is I'm creating extra work for the guys who are in that business. You're creating extra waste. Yeah. That ends up going to the landfill. Yeah, exactly. AKA dump. Dump. So good point. That was an excellent point and an excellent interview. I learned a lot and I hope that uh, everyone will continue to utilize what they learned last week. Yeah, and so here's another thing that kind of caught my eye this week and this was uh, something that uh, County Prosecuting Attorney Bob McCullough had uh, moved cases out of two St. Louis County courtrooms based upon the judges who were in those courtrooms. And it really came about because of, I think, some of the um, sentences that came down from those two uh, judges. And I, I don't know these judges from, you know, wouldn't recognize them if they walked in here. Christine Kerr and Nancy Watkins McLaughlin. But apparently, uh, County Prosecutor McCullough did not like some of the, this is, this is me talking, he did not like some of the things the decisions that they made. Uh, He said, there comes a time in every attorney's life where they make the decision that clients would be better served in front of a different judge, and that's where I am on these two divisions. So um, there was a case, Scott Bailey, who's an attorney from St. Louis County, 
was sentenced to 60 days in jail for manslaughter in a crash that killed a 73-year-old woman on Lindbergh Boulevard in Frontenac. And he gave, the, the judge, uh, Judge Kerr, in Division 14, sentenced him last week to 60 days in jail and probation for a 2016 street racing crash that killed this woman. Her family asked for the maximum sentence of four years in prison. Her son said after the hearing, 60 days in jail was too lenient. Now, I have to say that I have seen cases of drunk driving, people killing somebody on Highway 55, going the wrong way, and killed three or four people where people have gotten nothing more than probation. And the judge has said, this is a young person. Why should we destroy their life? When they just destroyed when, three or four right, others. That's right, when they've just destroyed three or four others. There have been cases right here, right off of Highway 55, where that has happened. You're and correct. the perpetrator walked with no time. You know, and it makes me think a little bit about our justice system. And I think the system, now this will sound, I don't want this to sound two-sided, talking out of both sides of my mouth. The system is only as good as the people who implement it. That's right. If the system is implemented by, now I'm going to use this as my word, remember the views and opinions expressed by <laughs> The host, guests, and whatever. And anybody that's in the parking lot. Right. Uh, and driving around listening <laughs> to the show. That's right. Exactly. Uh, if there are corrupt people implementing a system, the system will be corrupt. But the system may not be corrupt standing on its own or being implemented by somebody who's not corrupt. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Because I always say that, you know, the fish rots from the head down. It does. You know, and so we have to stop and we have to look at, like you said, is it the law that is corrupt the, or is it the person adjudicating the law? Or is, or is the law even being implemented? That's right. Yeah. You know, we talk about the, the federal stuff and all the regulations and, and, you know, people going back and forth about that. Are the things actually being implemented? Here's another one. Carmen Hunter of St. Louis was found guilty of molesting a boy at a U-City daycare, U-City, University City, where she worked in 2006. The Division 21 Judge Watkins McLaughlin sentenced Carmen Hunter last month after a jury found her guilty of molesting a four-year-old boy more than a decade ago. The judge gave Hunter up to six years in prison but placed her into Missouri's 120-day sex offender assessment program, which gives the judge the authority to release her depending on an evaluation by the Department of Corrections. Now, I will always say, by the way, the prosecutor was furious with the sentence and voiced her displeasure at the hearing. I will always say there is a balance with things. There is a balance of where people are remorseful. How do you know that they're remorseful? By what they say, by what they do. How do you know that is this person, is this a first-time offense? Is this a repeat offender? But like you said, if somebody's going to be drinking and driving and they're going to get on the wrong side of the highway and they're going to kill three people in the process of driving down the wrong side of the highway, there are consequences to actions. That's right. And when you take consequences away, then what do you do to people yeah, because people are going to compare. Well, in that situation, they got that, and it's not fair because I because I live in this other area. I'm getting a different sentence now. And, I mean, we won't even begin to talk about bail and oh. the difference in bail. Well, and Tony Messenger from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is doing a very interesting series on 
uh, individuals who are in outstate Missouri who have to pay for their time in jail when the state doesn't pay the entire amount. And so it's like, well, I thought you paid for your sentence when you were actually they, there. That's right. And so the poor are the ones who tend to have a lot of extra expenses heaped upon them. Agreed. You know, not just the person in jail, but their family because, you know, they have to pay um, to a phone system to be able to talk to their loved one. And, you know, there's always like a 10% surcharge on that. So every time you put money on the books, you're paying extra. You pay for them to have toothpaste and toothbrush and soap and everything. So you have to put money on their on their commissary, which, of course, that's a, a fund. That's right. an event that somebody else gets paid on that one, too. So here you've got poor families already who are dealing with a situation and the system, I think, is just not it's set up for the system to get rich off of the poor. Very much like the uh, ticket thing that was going on in, in several municipalities. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, is that the, the expense just keeps heaping up to, on top, on top, on top, and poor people are not able to pay. And this is not a racial issue. No. This is an economic issue. Right. And it's an abuse of the system issue. It's an abuse of the system issue. By the people who are supposed to be enforcing the system and making the system fair for everyone because justice has a blindfold on. She doesn't have one one part of the blindfold cocked up so she can see who's there. Yeah. The or dollar, have one, one part of the, the scales scale. with That's a finger right. on it. Exactly. But, you know, it's it's the thing of when, when you drop those dollar bills onto that scale, unfortunately, you can't tell whether it's a $1 bill. or Do they make $1,000 bills? They used to. I think they used to, didn't they? They don't make them anymore, I don't Okay, believe. well, a whole stack of $100 bills. Or you could have a million-dollar bill. I'd like to see that, man. I could see me going into Walgreens right now. <laughs> The Walgreens, it, right up there on Manchester. I think it was one of those countries that had inflation like at ten thousand percent. That's right, exactly. You know, I need I need a some toothbrush, a toothbrush. Here, I've got a ten million dollar bill to pay for it. Can you give me that change in pennies? In pennies, please. <laughs> oh boy, it's so, gonna be a long Friday. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. So those are a couple things there, and and then there's the. Um, there's a situation kind of going on in Webster Groves about the new city attorney. And, you know, it kind of goes back to that statement that you were making about the the law. You know, is it, is it that the law is errant or is it the application of the law that is errant? Or is there something missing from the law that makes it errant? Now, where's the missing link here? Exactly. So can to, between you and I, and we know very little about the case because we're trying to wait to hear from the people directly involved. We want people to know we're not trying to make a, a judgment on this one way or the other. But the situation is that we have a city attorney, Mr. Neil. Bruntrager or Bruntrager. Bruntrager. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Yes, and we apologize for not saying his name correctly. We apologize for that. But we know that he is our new city attorney. He was hired after another city attorney, uh, left because he moved away, and our charter states that our city attorneys must be residents of Webster Groves, which when you think about the small pool, we're, what, 22,000, how many are lawyers, and how many are lawyers that have expertise in city government? You know, it, it brings the... And how many of the, those actually want to... Come and work for Webster be, Groves. Right. Exactly, exactly. So that's kind of the situation in a nutshell, but we've got a situation that really jumps up because... Neil, 
as a lawyer, defended Wilson and Shockley. And of course, two very, very high profile cases that created a lot of disruption here in the city of St. Louis. So what do we do? It's, it's created a, a fervor that questioned the city council's decision because they voted apparently unanimously to hire the individual. And um, it also, uh, you know, there were individuals who were kind of talking about this attorney and, you know, why would he want to do that? And then the city council, why would they want to do that? And what's wrong with us as a community? And uh, we're going to pick this back up after the break and uh, ask some questions, maybe not have answers. I don't think we have answers. And we're going to wait until Monday. We're going to try to get everybody on board on Monday to really give us some concrete answers. All aboard. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. With Ellie Wharton. I'm having a great time. I don't know about you. I'm having a, I'm having a great time, too. I'm having a fabulous time. My time that I'm having is better than the time you're having. Stupendous, humongous time. <laughs> okay, mine is Bigly. <laughs> bigly? Bigly. I'm having a Bigly good time here. <laughs> a Bigly good time. Okay. That's, that's uh, hilarious. That was, <laughs> those sound effects, man, I tell you, we are just jumping with them now, aren't we? I thought we? that was Chris laughing. Yeah. Chris has a much heartier laugh than that. <laughs> yeah. And we don't want Sean's laugh on here. <laughs> his, hey, you've sound, got... his sounds a little sinister. Uh, uh, Sean just told you something about... Uh, I, I don't laugh. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> he cries. He cries. That's right. But... I am smiling. Yeah, that's it. There you go. But, you know, now, Sean may not laugh, but Sean knows how to broadcast sports. I'm yes, he does. You that, In yes, a big does. sports event tonight. A bigly sport, sports event. A bigly sports event. A bigly hugely. Hum- humongous... Tremendous. Lee. You got to always make it an adverb, okay? Humongous, tremendous, tremendously Big sports Lee. events. Big league basketball. Ooh, uh-oh, ka-ching. There's some money involved with this too, huh? It's the boys' basketball uh, Webster Winter Classic. And it is uh, Webster versus Lee Summit. Tonight at 7 p.m., but the uh, Classic starts at, I think, 4. Yes, but, you know, for our broadcast purposes, people will be able to tune in to 92.9 FM and hear our broadcast, which will start just probably around 7 o'clock tonight. And then at 8.30, 8.45, we go directly from the Webster Winter Classics to hockey, 8.45. So people, stay tuned. You can just, might as well just... Just put KWRH 92.9 FM on your dial. Let it stay there day and night because we are going to be jamming. And you know what? And coming up, we've got 48 hours of Christmas music coming up December 24th and 25th. And our own our own Christopher Daisy is putting that whole thing together. It's called The Bigly Christmas the Show. The Bigly Christmas Show. <laughs> <laughs> and as a matter of fact, Chris is not even going home. 
for 48 hours. He's staying here in the in the studio the entire 48 hours. He, he just doesn't know it yet. I'm going to be spinning all your favorite Christmas hits. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and if we've got a turntable in there, I need to see that. Yeah. But, you know, last night, man, I was listening to um, one of our shows, uh, the Rockabilly Show. And that guy came on with some rockabilly Christmas classics that I, I tell you, I was sitting in my car. I couldn't even get out. I had to sit in my car in the Snooks parking lot. You were, you were jamming and laughing? I was, I was jamming and laughing, man. It was good. It was really good. So there are so many Christmas songs out there. Or shall we just say holiday songs? There you go. That are out there that we've never really heard because we've always been tied into this traditional, you know, stuff that we've been listening to. And man, there are some really jamming holiday tunes out there. So the non-traditional jamming shows. And and you know jamming songs. Jamming songs. And thank goodness you can hear it first here on KWRHLP because when you listen to those other stations that play twenty four hours of Christmas music ad nauseum, you're gonna hear the same songs again and again. And oh, what do you think about um, uh, what's that one song? Baby, it's cold outside. The big brouhaha over that song right now. It's supposed to be sexist and, you know, um, abusive because I guess he's getting ready to put her out in the cold or something like that. I've never listened to that song in that way. I haven't either. And, you know, we can always have uh, a look back on history and say, hmm, uh, well, that that could be interpreted this way or hmm, that could be interpreted this way. the, The Rudolph with the red nose. Is he embarrassed or is he drinking too much or what's the deal? It could be, see? Well, somebody was also talking about Charlie Brown Christmas show. Really? Yes. What, what's wrong with Charlie Brown? Well, that uh, and I don't know all the characters because I, you know, I'm not a huge Charlie Brown fan. But uh, the character who is black is uh-huh. he's kind of by himself, and everybody else is <clears throat> dancing over here. Okay. And they said, well, that's kind of a quote unquote racist deal. No, it's just it's no. Well, <laughs> it is what it is. Then, okay. <laughs> then there's the um, there's there's the Veggie Tales. Okay. That somebody said in California, it was a professor in a class, and the class had done a, uh, a project that VeggieTales is actually racist, based okay. upon some of the, the voices that are on some of the quote-unquote villain uh, vegetables. You see, first of all, we have to get a handle on that word. Yes, we do. Racist. Racism, racist, it is so overly used that at this point, it's like everything that you say that somebody else doesn't agree with is racist. Say it, girl. And the thing of it is, is that it's like, okay, people stop using that. Okay, I'm going to break it down. White liberals, stop using that term. Okay, because everything in the world that's done is not racist. And there's a difference between racism and being prejudiced. Right. There's a huge difference. And most of what people call racism is not racism. It is prejudice. Right. So, you know, we got to stop doing that and patting ourselves on the back and making us feel like we're really approaching this issue. And no, stop it. Well, speaking about an issue, it's the issue kind of we talked about before the break, which was about the new city attorney. Right. Who the uh, Webster Groves, uh, the city of Webster Groves has hired. And um, just consternation because uh, he was the attorney for uh, Darren Wilson. And he was also the attorney for um, Jason Shockley. Stockley. Stockley. Yeah. And so uh, when he was uh, approved unanimously by the city council, there was some discussion, probably using that word lightly, within the community about what in the world is this. And um, the focus was on the attorney at the time, Neil 
Bruntrager or Bruntrager, I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. Uh, and then it kind of tended to veer off and then go towards the process, which uh, really only allows people who live within the community of Webster Groves to apply for these kinds of positions. Right, exactly. So, you know, I asked you a question before we went on the air, Ellie. I said, if it wasn't this person who was approved to be the city attorney, would we be talking about this issue right now? I really don't think we would be. I think that it is a situation where both sides are trying to really kind of bump up their positioning to make a determination, you know, and I know that the people that are working within Webster Groves, whether it be the pastors, whether it be citizens, whether it be our uh, elected officials, everybody is working for the benefit of the residents of Webster Groves. I truly believe that. And I don't feel that anybody is trying to do anything that is clandestine, that is um, just under the table. I just feel that this is a situation when we look at the overall, and and again, I'm not going to comment too much on what I do know, because I want to hear the people involved. I want them to be the ones to make the statements. But again, it goes back to, um, do we penalize people for doing their job when it when it's done in a way that is um where there's no real agenda behind it you know and you and i talked about that it's the difference of if you're a surgeon and let's say that you had um um a baby killer you know on the table mass murderer you know right and you had a mother Teresa on the table and you're a doctor and your job is to save this person's life do you make that determination that you save the mass murderer and now because you saved the mass murderer's life, you're always vilified for doing that? And I know many of the comments that I did happen to read on social media said, well, it's not about the individual. It's about the process. It's about, you know, they, they were upset at the city council. Uh, they were upset at this process that really restricts the amount of applicants and uh, valid applicants, because maybe there's people who, uh, and, and I know it's talked about, well, people, you know, people can't live here because it's so expensive to live here. Or, and it's like, well, maybe people choose not to live here because of other reasons. And it's not because it's expensive to live here. Maybe they just don't want to live here. And I think that's why it's going to be important for us to hear from both sides. This weekend, there's supposed to be a meeting between the pastors and the city councilors. And, um, you know, these are the people that have been put in place to give us a better understanding of what is going on. And I think that at this juncture, everybody should kind of like um, back it down a couple of. Yeah. You know, like I always say, hold your panties. <laughs> did I just say that? Can I say that on the air, Chris? Or is that one of those? You just did. <laughs> <laughs> boop, boop. That's right. But. Let's wait. Let's let's not rush to judgment on this situation. Well, and, and with that comment, it's important to get the facts of the information it and to get so the truth. Important. And uh, you know, I notice sometimes my emotions get ahead of my brain, and that's always not a a good thing. And if I'm making decisions based upon the information that I have in front of me, it's only as good as the information I have. Exactly. And so I did, you know, say, and I, and I promised several people that today, you know, we're just going to give a brief skim over it because we want people to know that we, we understand what's going on. We're in, in touch with the people that uh, are involved. 
And we have given them our reassurance that, you know, we're basically going to give them the opportunity to tell the story. I'm not going to react. I've had people contact me and say, well, what do you think, Ellie? And I was like, it's not my place to to comment on personnel issues for the city. Right. You know, my job is to uh, facilitate a fair reporting of the situation. And once I get in there and people start hearing me have one side or another, they're going to think, well, she didn't let that person come on because she was against them. Or she let that person come on because she's for them or she's their friend. No, then if that happens, we lose our viability as a community radio station. Well, and we lose our viability as a community to talk to one another and agree to disagree because we're not always going to agree on everything. And it's important that we open our ears and listen to other people and not uh, be, be talking and thinking about what I'm going to say and retort, you know? Uh, so listening is a, is a very important uh, skill yes. and, and one that people really need to utilize and leave in, in, leaving emotions out of things and knowing that, like you said, people are coming at this uh, not from, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to get this in and we're going to get this, you know, I don't, I don't really put those kinds of motives to people unless things become very evident, you know, then, then they're calling it themselves. Right. And then we also have the issue of the protest, which is supposed to be scheduled for January 20th, which is the exact day of the Martin Luther King march from the city hall to Steger and then the program that we have. And so now the march is being planned for the exact same day. Well, I'm going to give you a thought on that. Because I've gone to that program year after year after year. And you know what I see? I see when we start off, I see a very diverse auditorium. I see lovely children getting ready to get up on the stage and sing or recite or do whatever. And everything seems jolly until those students finish singing. And once they finish singing, I watched white flight Faster than somebody, you know, that um, was in the city years ago and a black family moved in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> by the time, by the time we get to the speaker, almost all the white people have left. Interesting. Okay. And I've watched this year after year after year. And so by the time, so all it is, is that we're just there in order to satisfy the responsibility of having my child sing in the choir. Okay, they got up there, they did it, we're out of here. So where is the dedication to the whole Martin Luther King march and everything that's going along with it when as soon as my child finishes performing, I'm out of here. I don't even take time to listen to the rest of the program. I don't listen to the speaker, nor do I even have enough graciousness to really wait until maybe there's a break that makes, makes sense. No, they did whatever's happening now gets interrupted because people get up and leave and go home or they're to sit in the back of the auditorium if they have to do that well then the whole back of the auditorium would, would be, be white <laughs> <laughs> i said it you did say it but see that's what i you see i look at that and i say to webster come on folks let's be real here you know and and, and people talk about oh and the optics well i mean good gracious i could i could look at an optics of an all-white city council and go, that doesn't look good, you know, and I can make an issue of that. I can make an issue of a lot of optics that really have nothing to do with really anything. Well, it's, it's being part of a solution rather than being part of a problem. 
And if you're not part of a solution or trying to make things better, uh, you're, then you're just kind of treading water. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing is, is when you're in a community such as the Webster Groves, where we don't have a lot of issues to really get up there and beat the beat the drum about, I guess the last issue was the development of the Sandstone property on Lockwood. That was the big issue. The big issue before that was the color of our trash cans. You know, come on, folks. How much has really happened in this region that truly is Webster Groves? And when you look at what our complaints are, they're very minimal. And I just think that it's important. And they're minimal because we've had a city government and people that work for our community that do so with the best interest of our community at heart. I know these people. They truly have the best interest of the community at heart. And, and I know uh, five of the seven fairly decently that, you know, if they thought that there was something really wrong with this particular thing, they would have said something. That is absolutely right. And I'm happy to say that I know seven of the seven. You got it, girl. You know, that's right. Oh, did you call me girl? <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, maybe 77 years ago, you were sitting around Sunday morning and maybe you were getting ready to go to church. Maybe you had just poured that first cup of coffee. You turned on the radio. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. We take you now to Washington. The details are not available. They will be in a few minutes. The White House is now giving out a statement. The attack apparently was made on all naval and on naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. So 77 years ago, that's what you would have heard if you were listening to the radio and wondering what in the world was going on December 7th, 1941 at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Uh, so early in the morning, that sneak attack by Japanese warplanes, they were bombing the Navy base there at Oahu uh, Island in Pearl Harbor. Uh, President Roosevelt and the Secretary of State uh, Cordell Hull knew that a Japanese attack was imminent, and they had gotten re intelligence reports of intercepted coded messages from Tokyo to the Japanese ambassador in the United States. And the president anticipated some Japanese reprisals for the government's refusal to reverse economic sanctions and embargo against Japan. Uh, they had The Roosevelt administration had remained firm in its demand that J Japan withdraw from China and French Indochina, a.k.a. Vietnam, which had in, it had invaded in 1937 and July of 1941, respectively. So Japan refused and demanded that the U.S. end the embargo on what? oil shipments, which was vital for Tokyo's war machine. So they were negotiating, and there was a secret November 25th deadline that Tokyo had established. But prior to this, Japan was secretly planning an attack. And 
President Roosevelt and his advisors knew that there was going to be some kind of Japanese attack, which was probable. They thought it was going to be on the Philippines. Uh, you got the Philippines, you got, what, Iwo Jima in there, you've got uh, several other islands along the way, and then you get to Hawaii. And so, maybe not Iwo Jima, there would have been, um, oh, what was the battle? It was the, it was the... Um, Midway? Midway, right, Midway was that Ooh, island. Wee. Yeah, the Battle of Midway. Well, somebody, somebody was sitting in history class and listened. Yeah, he, he was going there. <laughs> so, right. Admiral Yamamoto from Japan, he believed that if Prime Minister Tojo was determined to go to war, a preemptive strike really needed to be made. And this attack did take place, as we know, uh, on December 7th at 7.02. Two radar operators spotted large groups of aircraft in flight towards the island from the north, but there was a flight of B-17s that was expected, so they kind of ignored that and didn't sound any alarm. Well, the first dive bomber was spotted over Pearl Harbor at 7.55. It was followed by 200 aircraft and decimated uh, a bunch of a bunch of ships. Five of the eight battleships, three destroyers, seven other ships were sunk or severely damaged, 200 aircraft destroyed, total of 2,400 Americans <laughs> killed, 1,200 wounded, uh, many, many valiantly repulsing the attack. Japan's lost uh, 30 planes, five midget submarines, and fewer than 100 men. There was one captured also. So what was very uh, nice is that our aircraft carriers were actually out at sea doing some maneuvers and doing some uh, tests. So that you know, was their big thing that they were going for. But this kind of goes back to <clears throat> what I've learned is like the Hagus effect, where a government creates a problem, creates an issue, okay? Then they lay blame on someone else for the issue that they created. Right. And then the outcome is war. The outcome is war. Has, okay. it, has happened before. It has happened, if you think about it, almost every time, because if you go back to the Lusitania, created a situation, laid blame on the Germans, eventually went to war. Well, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, President Roosevelt appeared before a joint session of Congress and did this. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, 
I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. So the Senate voted for war against Japan, 82 to 0. The House approved the resolution by a vote of 388 to 1. The sole dissenter was Representative Jeanette Rankin of Montana. Three days later, Germany and Italy declared war against the United States, and the U.S. government responded in kind. Now what we want to do, folks, in the second half of our hour, beginning at 12 o'clock, we're going to have John McManus, award-winning professor and author and military historian, to talk about Pearl Harbor and the battle and that day in more great detail. And we want you to stay tuned to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of In Tune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We're going to be continuing our conversation about Pearl Harbor and the 77th anniversary of that fateful day, the date that will live in infamy, as uh, President Franklin Roosevelt said so well in our previous uh, hour. 
But on the line, we have uh, Professor uh, John McManus, who is an award-winning professor, author, and military historian. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, and this is bestowed by the Board of Curators on the most outstanding scholars in the U.M. system. He is the, uh, he's the author of 12 well-received books on military topics and military history. He has appeared on dozens of local national radio programs, CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN, Military Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel, Netflix, Smithsonian Channel, History Channel, PBS, and KWRHLP, 92.9 FM. Welcome, John, to In Tune. Hey, thanks for having me. And you're a St. Louis native, too, right? You got it. I grew up in St. Louis, and uh, I am a, I'm a proud native and a proud resident. And I was looking at your background. You have a degree in sports journalism. So how does the leap to military historian happen? <laughs> yeah, um, I actually, you know, went to the University of Missouri, you know, as you, as you mentioned, for sports journalism. Uh, but, you know, as I was, was going through that program, uh, I found that I was taking any history class I, you know, could possibly take and ended up with, a, with the equivalent of a minor. And I found that, it, you know, really a lot of the same skills and training equated on, on both sides. And I, I just kind of figured, I guess, that uh, I had a little bit more of a passion for, for the study of military history and that I would be doing much the same kind of things. So I'm, I'm really glad I did it. I really never looked back. Now, did you have this love for history kind of growing up, or was it something that was developed while you were at uh, Mizzou? I really did. Uh, you know, I, I was the kid who was, you know, seven years old at the county library, um, you know, checking any book out that I could about World War II. Um, and what actually really kind of drew me to the topic um, as, I, as I got a little older was this maybe also like a sense of frustration that it seemed like a lot of history was done from the top down or from a very kind of, um, you know, clinical disassociated kind of point of view of the big picture. And not that that's not important, but I wondered, you know, what are these events, particularly what, what were the battles like for those who actually had to fight them? And I didn't, I didn't feel like there was enough emphasis on that. And so, you know, when I got old enough to pursue this career, uh, I decided really that that was one, a side of history that needed greater illumination, that I would kind of go in that direction. So most of my books tend to, to be written from the bottom-up perspective, but with an appreciation and understanding of how people are affected by the great events and great forces of the time. Pearl Harbor is a classic example of, you know, the, the guy who's under the bombs, um, you know, how has it gotten to that point that the Japanese and the Americans are tangling here on that day? And, and uh, you know, then what is it like for those who are there? And you, when you were at, uh, got your PhD from University of Tennessee, you did, you were instrumental in talking to and recording uh, veterans from World War II about their stories, Correct. Right. That's why I went to the University of Tennessee, because at the time, uh, Dr. Charles Johnson had a very large, uh, pretty major project going called the, the World War II Veterans Project. And his task was to gather as much firsthand material from World War II veterans as possible so that we could preserve the stories, whether, you know, in written format from the time, if somebody kept a diary or wrote letters home, you know, that kind of thing, or if they wrote memoirs later, or quite commonly what we did is we just... Uh, fanned out far and wide and, and interviewed people um, so that, so that you know, as the decades go on and unfortunately as the generation passes, um, you know, those accounts will be there for historians, uh, you know, long after, after we're gone. Um, so that to me was the, the kind of human story that drew me 
into, into the, the passion for the topic. And uh, Dr. Johnson did some really seminal work. So I'm very fortunate that I got to be a part of that. Now, we, we have uh, kind of laid some groundwork about what happened uh, prior to the, the reason for the attack and what was going on with Japan and their invasion of China and Indochina and um, the thought that, and you can kind of correct me at any point, uh, because I like to have my history correct. Uh, one of the things we like to do on the show, and Ellie's busy on her computer kind of checking some facts out uh, as we're talking, is um, I always like to have... The, facts correct, gaps plugged up that are gaps with other information that maybe, well, that was that would have been nice to know uh, at the time when I was uh, taught this. So if, if you could sum up in a, a general statement and then with a, an explanation of what was this whole conflict with Japan and the United States about? Was it about oil? Was it about um, uh, Japan taking over territories uh, like like in China and invading, there were a couple, I think like three incidents which kind of pushed the buttons of the United States. There was a ship that was sunk, I remember. Um, there was a, an ambassador that was kind of slapped by a military soldier, which kind of was adding insult to injury. What was the, the tipping point that kind of sprung all this into action? Yeah, I think there's a couple of sources. Um, certainly resources, especially from a, from a Japanese point of view, that uh, as Japan industrialized by the early 20th century, it became very clear that uh, in order to have any kind of parity with the larger imperial powers and, and the you know European imperial powers and the, and the USA, uh, that Japan would have to have access to its own strain of, of resources, primarily oil and iron ore, uh, you know, for the for the making of steel. And of course, the home islands just just did not have that. Um, so Japan began to look outward. Um, to, to try and carve out uh, a continental empire for itself at the expense of China. Um, that's what the army wanted, the Imperial Japanese Army. The Imperial Navy was really thinking in terms of a, of a kind of Pacific Rim empire, especially at the expense of um, what was called the Dutch East Indies in those days, a kind of sort of sclerotic edifice of uh, what had been a Dutch empire in what is today Indonesia. But there was a lot of you know, like oil, rubber, tin, bauxite, magnesium, all these kind of goodies the Japanese wanted. Well, from an American perspective, the Americans have been heavily invested in a balance of power in the Asia-Pacific Rim for decades. And that was sort of manifested in what was called the open door to China, uh, in which uh, European powers, the USA and Japan, had all participated economically on their own terms in China, really at the Chinese expense. Um, and no one was too strong and no one too weak. Well, Japan starts to, to think about upsetting that balance of power. And uh, this is happening by, you know, 1940 and 41. The U.S. reaction to that is to, to start, um, you know, putting diplomatic pressure on, but also eventually most in a most extreme sense, an embargo. And, and, and really in the most direct sense, that's what leads to the, the Pearl Harbor attack and the decision for the Japanese to go to war um, because they feel – they have to have American iron ore, scrap iron, steel, oil. Um, otherwise, you know, they're, they're going to be in a uh, subordinate status forever after, and they see it as an existential crisis. So what's really interesting to me as a historian is that the average American sees Pearl Harbor as just sort of this, you know, sucker punch out of nowhere and, and, and the ultimate in sort of perfidy and infamy and, and treacher, treacherous kind of actions. But really, it was quite a logical sort of capstone to the tension that had been building for many, many months. Um, so the Japanese try and 
you know, land this punch against what is a stronger foe in the hopes of crippling them uh, to have a shorter war and, and conclude it on their terms. But see, it goes back to what I was saying before you came on before you came on the air, John. You know, it's kind of like the Hagus effect. You know, a problem is created. Then you lay blame on others. But the result is go to war. And we see it again and we see that pattern again and again and again. You know, we look at World War One again with the Lusitania. You know, then all of a sudden everybody is up in arms because the Lusitania gets bombed by the Germans and loss of life. We see it again on December 7th with Pearl Harbor. We see it again at 9-11. We see it again and again and again. And again, what happens is that the communication that's given to the people, again, because we know that history is his story, is always diluted and then we're taught the wrong thing. So that we're, we're taught to look at things in a very skewed manner. How do we correct how do we correct these types of what I call miseducations? Well, I think one thing is that our, perhaps our, our leaders have a good grasp of, of history and the mistakes that have been made in the past and, and maybe start to, to learn and address that. And I think also from a sort of average person point of view, uh, I guess as a you know humanities professor on, on that side of the house, I always believe very strongly in the idea of understanding how to gather information and, and uh, to think critically and to, to assess the information you're getting and, and you know, to, to realize that, um, you know, not everything is black and white and that sometimes you're operating on partial information in the daily events and it's hard to sort things out and, and you know, to perhaps try and step back from, from whatever seems to be happening at the time and assessing it as rationally as you can. It's very difficult. It really is. And, um, yeah. You know, Especially when, when, when you war look... happens, go, go on, sorry. go on, John. Yeah, when war happens, it's usually you know a failure on on the part of everyone involved for whatever reason. And you know, I'm not necessarily here to justify what the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor. I mean, certainly it is a day of infamy. Um, but I, I can also say that you know, if you if we really study the war, um, you know, you you see the progression that was leading to this. That's and, right. Uh, you see, you know, you see the perspective of both sides. And, um, so, and you know, and, and you know, as we as we get more distant from it, it's possible to study it less emotionally. And I, I think maybe that's the key. That's the advantage historians always have. But if we are never taught the intricacies, you know, I mean, I can even go even further back. Let's go back to the Revolutionary War. Let's go back to the Civil War. You know, people thinking that the Civil War was fought primarily over slavery when we know that that's not the case. That was not the case. You know, and we look at all of this and how history is written. And it's always written from the perspective of the victor. And, it, and, it, and the goal is to make the others look bad. I mean, but when we look at things like no aircraft carriers were present, you know, no communications and operations facilities were damaged. We talk about the great loss of the warships, but actually only uh, of the eight ships, six were raised and were able to be used, and the two others provided armament, you know, to, sal to be salvaged for the other ships. That's, that's, a historical, that's historical information that's not being given to us, our children, ourselves, to know the reality of the history. Well, the, you know, the history is there for anyone who wants to study it. By now, there's been great scholarship by Gordon Prang and, and Walter Lord and so many others that, you know, it's possible if you really want to explore it, you can you can start to get within the depths of that. And you're right in the sense that, of course, we all know what happens on December 7th, 1941. Um, really understanding the layers of it, as you said, the aircraft carriers are not present. 
Uh, that was a real break for the Americans that day because they, as it turned out in the war, tended to be the most important ships. Um, the uh, the battleships, you know, the eight that are sunk, six eventually see service again. But, of course, most notably, the one that remains there today is the USS Arizona, where you have about, about half the American loss of life that day was aboard that ship. Exactly. Roughly. Yeah. You know, so. And especially yeah, because are, we. There are really a lot of layers to it. Right. Especially since the fact of it is, is that those ships le- left Japan like 12 days prior. So, you know, when we talk about this, this sneak attack kind of thing, you know, it's like you got all of these, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of warships heading your way. To me, that's not a secret. Well, it, it uh, they, as far as, you know, we, we start now get into the, the sort of intelligence gathering and what uh, what the Americans knew and what they didn't. Um, they, they knew a Japanese fleet was at sea proceeding eastward. Um, they did not necessarily have good, you know, hands-on intel that an attack was coming at Pearl Harbor at such and such a time. Um, they also made some mistakes. You know, it's like a lot of these things. It's a bit of a perfect storm. Um uh, they didn't have combat air patrol, you know, of their planes over the harbor that day. Uh, they had uh, they had taken the torpedo nets up um, from from the harbor. And why did they do that? Because it was just a real pain to maneuver in the harbor with those torpedo nets around. And they did not believe the Japanese would be able to to, to have torpedoes that could run in those shallow waters. They were wrong. Um, you know, the USS Ward. Sank. Uh, we tend to forget this side of the Pearl Harbor attack. There was a submarine aspect to it on the Japanese side. They had small, what were called midget subs at the time. A two-man crew uh, would wait outside the mouth of the harbor, and then as, pl- as ships started to, to uh, retreat to try and get away from the, the attack of the planes, they would sink uh, these ships. That was the plan. Well, one of these submarines tried to follow um, an American ship into the harbor even before the attack, about an hour and a half before, and the USS Ward which, by the way, had a brand-new skipper that day, um, brand-new guy running the ship. Um, you know, the USS Ward tracked down the sub and sank it about, oh, about 45 minutes or so before the, the plane, the Japanese planes got there. Well, by the time the communication uh, ends up in the hands of Admiral Husband Kimmel, the, uh, the commander the chief of the Pacific Fleet, um, it's almost like right at that moment when the, the Japanese planes have arrived. So, you know, it's too late, really, to do anything about it. So... There was that. There was the, the problem with the, the Army radar in the northern part of Ohio, or, or excuse me, Oahu, you know, the, the uh, island where Pearl Harbor is located, uh, where, you know, they're getting these blips on the radar, but they don't really understand that it means Japanese attackers. Um, it's just kind of a tragic comedy of errors in some ways, too. Yeah, you, you said uh, a perfect storm, and it, and it really seems to be. And I was reading about the, uh, actually talking about St. Louis, the USS St. Louis, which apparently rammed one of those midget subs on the way out of the, the harbor. They were kind of limping out and getting going. There was a, uh, a gentleman who was on the uh, St. Louis from Warrington who passed away in 2010, but his, his story is very interesting about what happened on that day and uh, how uh, you know 50 caliber machine guns were concentrating. I, you know, I was doing some prep for the show. I was, I was kind of surprised at... Um, the torpedo planes and then the bombers, and that the ability of them, how they approached uh, Pearl Harbor and how they approached the ships and what their t- main targets were. They had, obviously, their main targets were the air, uh, aircraft carriers, but they weren't there. And the battleship seems to be like um, this big, like, uh, oh, uh, target as it relates to just for status. And th- they wanted to, just these are my words, try to cripple the 
status of the United States by by killing their battleships. And you know, I think one was in dry dock, but they totally left the oil that was in the tanks there by the by the airfield completely. You know, they didn't bomb that at all. And uh, I was I was just surprised at the. Um, of course, this person that I was reading, they commented about the inaccuracy and the secondary and third targets that had to, uh, the pilots had to go for. Uh, their accuracy, though, was less than 50%, and on the second wave, I think it was like 29% or something like that. So it, the, the devastation could have been a whole lot worse had they been more accurate. And I know we kind of look back at things uh, with our technological minds today and you know, about communications, like, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Well, it was not that sophisticated at that time. Yeah, and you pointed out a really good point. Uh, the, they left the, what was called the tank farm unscathed, and that was the about six months' worth of fuel and oil storage for the Pacific Fleet. So had that been knocked out, you really are crippling the mobility of the surviving ships more so than you otherwise would have had. So that, that plays out in some of the early naval battles of the war that we don't necessarily have major fuel problems because of the, the tank farm is left unscathed. Um, one of the things I, I, I have, a, I have a forthcoming book coming out about um, the, the, the history of the army in the Pacific Asia war. And one of the points I make in there is that um, really the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and its environs was an attack against American sea power and air power and everybody else was just kind of in the way. Um, so, they, they had to prioritize because they knew they were only going to have surprise for so long. And so they, they prioritized, like you said, hitting the battleships. Um, in the years leading up to Pearl Harbor, there was a raging argument in naval circles um, as to whether battleships would remain as the, the sort of, you know, capital ships, the, the important ships in war, or whether aircraft carriers would supplant them. In retrospect, we know it's the latter. But you know, as of the day of Pearl Harbor, the argument was still going on. So battleships uh, were really quite valuable targets. And, uh, you know, you said absolutely right, uh, the prestige. Um, so to, to sink those battleships meant a lot diplomatically, I suppose, to the Japanese, but more so than, than militarily. Um, I would not have wanted to have been a uh, Japanese aviator in on the second wave, because by then the element of surprise is lost in every anti-aircraft gun on the entire island of Oahu. Is, is active. Um, so it's no accident that the majority of their casualties happened during the second wave attack. So, the, the, so they decide not to launch a third wave because they thought it would be too prohibitively costly in casualties. And they didn't want their carriers hanging around in those waters about 300 miles north of the Hawaiian Islands because they knew the U.S. carriers could, could uh, you know, perhaps hunt them down and, promote, uh, and prompt an engagement. And those carriers were under the, the command of ultimately a very famous admiral, uh, William Halsey was doing just that by the night of Pearl Harbor after the attack he's doing everything he can to try and find the Japanese carriers but unsuccessfully but why didn't we also report that right after the attack on Pearl Harbor there was an attack on the Philippines yeah within a day yeah um, and, within and, hours you know in some ways in some ways Ellie this is the bigger fiasco uh, because um, General uh, Douglas MacArthur who was the the American commander of the Philippines at this point um, is informed. He's woken up with a call, a uh, very early morning call about what had happened at Pearl Harbor. And somehow he came away with the impression that Pearl Harbor had been a disaster for the Japanese. Um, and yet he doesn't have his, his command on, on full alert, um, and, and specifically to protect his, uh, 
his bombers and his other planes that he has uh, based north of Manila. And so within about a 24-hour period of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese scored quite a coup there in that they destroyed most of his air power on the ground, which in turn, the consequence of that, it left them in a very good position to be able to invade the Philippines wherever they wanted uh, and also blockade it uh, with their own sea power as well. So it had disastrous consequences. Um, And it was arguably as big a screw-up as as Pearl Harbor from an American point of view, I guess. Um, but, uh, But it's not... You know, not quite as well known. Right. And I, I always feel that it's those lesser well-known facts that really help to bring a puzzle, pull a puzzle together. And and see, for me, because I love history, just like you love history, John, I mean, I find this stuff like so intriguing, you know, it's like a mystery novel to me. Right. And, you know, but when They're I when I look at the total of history, you know, and, I, and I'm don't want to sound like a broken record here, you know, but when I continue to go back and I study more and more and more, you know, I go all the way back to, you know, the whole thing with Columbus, you know, Columbus never made it here to America, but why do we have Columbus Day? You know, when you look at what Columbus was about, he wasn't about anything that had to do with anything that was the United States. But we, we now all, you know, have a federal holiday for somebody that really basically never landed here, never landed. And not only that was responsible for the murdering of indigenous people across the Caribbean area. We look at World War One with the Lusitania. We look at December 7th with Pearl Harbor. We look at 9-11. It led to war. We look at, you know, we keep going on and on and on and on and on. And it's a bigger mosaic than just that particular situation. Uh, you know, inevitably and always, it, it really is. And um, that's, that's, I suppose that's why historians like to try and get to the root and branch of things and explore the the, the causes and consequences and you know, I guess as we always hope classically, we can learn some lessons. Right, you know. Um, whether we do is... is <laughs> You're right, John. Because even, even people... historians, I'm not talking about other, other right. people, even historians struggle to learn the lessons. Because so, even when we look at unique about us. the sinking of the the uh, Titanic, you know, we've, we've glamorized that with a movie and, oh, you know, I'll never do, you know, and nearer my God to thee becomes this great, you know, but when we really look at the story behind the Titanic... You know, there was a much darker story there, you know. Arrogance. Right. It, it, well, it it had to do with the Federal Reserve Bank, which, of course, as we know, is not a bank; it's not federal, and funds all the wars in the world, on both sides. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. I, I don't know that, Ellie. So. Well, I, you know, if people were to do their history, just do a little research, and see who was on the Lusitania. I mean, who was on the the Titanic? You know, Mr. Guggenheim, Mr. Astor. You know, um, Mr. Strauss, people that were supposed to be on the Federal Reserve Bank Board but were against it. And they were invited by Mr. J.P. Morgan to be on that fi- that trip, which was the inaugural trip. And Mr. J.P. Morgan at the last minute wasn't on the trip, but the other people were. As soon as they sank, guess what happened with the Federal Reserve Bank? It went into effect. And so, you know, as historians, if we're not telling, really, really, really coming back and telling the story and revising it so that students are learning a different truth. Well, if we're not telling the truth. Right. That, that's the, Notice that's I said the a thing. different truth. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I, when I looked at uh, this battle and I saw the, the Japanese, um, the track in which their ships were taking uh, their raw materials, they had to go in between uh, Asia and the Philippines or um, down in that area. And, and the United States could have easily had cut that off in a blockade. And so going to the Philippines made easy sense. 
But what about the other islands between Hawaii and uh, the Philippines? When did those fall along the way, like Midway, et cetera? Well, you only, Midway never falls, but you, you only have a few that are considered by either side to be of any you know, military value. And um, the best example, of course, is Wake Island, which was a, you know, a tiny American possession out in the middle of the, you know, the Pacific. And uh, so the Japanese invade that within, I think, within about a week of Pearl Harbor. Um, and didn't really earmark many troops to, to go after. There was a small contingent of Marines. There were civilian contractors. There was some Navy there. Not, you know, major ships of any kind, but um, there was a small airfield. Um, so the initial Japanese invasion failed. And so they came up with, back with more troops and ultimately took the island. Uh, Midway, of course, is uh, is attacked by the, the spring, late May and into June. And this, you know, presages the, one of the great naval, naval battles ever. Uh, the Battle of Midway. Um, but fortunately for the Americans, you know, they, they hang on to Midway. Um, the Philippine Islands ends up as a fiasco of a campaign from about the aftermath of Pearl Harbor through the early part of June 1942. Um, and you could argue that was one of the great humanitarian disasters in, in modern American military history because of the, the POWs, the right. Bataan Death March, the, you know, all of these things that are, that are you know, still with us today that I think we understand fairly well. Now, we, uh, we're going to get ready to take a break here in a, in a minute, but um, you're listening to John McManus, who's award-winning professor, author, and military historian. He's written over 12 books. He's currently working on a two-volume history of the Army in the Pacific Asia Theater during World War II, the first volume slated for publication next June and July. And the first chapter of that book covers the Pearl Harbor attack. So would be one that if you're a military buff and especially a World War II buff, you want to you probably know about um, Dr. McManus and uh, his books. You probably have them all on your shelf. And if you don't, check it out at the, at the library. But we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the aftermath of the of what took place at Pearl Harbor and how the United States uh, recovered. We've been talking a little bit about that, but we're going to go in a little bit more depth. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. in tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. And, also- and, and you know what? I just want to say this. John, you're on the phone with us still. John McManus. Yep. This yep. is so interesting. This, this conversation, I love it. I love what you're sharing with us. We're okay. talking. Yeah, we're, it is fascinating. It is. We're talking about Pearl Harbor. where We are on the 77th anniversary of uh, that date that will live in infamy, as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt stated. And uh, we were talking about a variety of things, what led up to this, kind of the, uh, my words, the dysfunction of what was going on at the time, the perfect storm, that everything happened that could go wrong. And uh, it was, we were very fortunate that some things actually went right for the United States, uh, i.e. some carriers were not in port. Um, the guns were trained on the second wave of aircraft that were coming through so there were not as many uh, accurate strikes 
So the devastation could have been even worse. The fuel tanks, which house six months of, of fuel, could have been destroyed, which would have really crippled us. So um, where I kind of want to go with this is, um, I, I actually, I had a kind of a question before we started this. Was the United States considering uh, a new, um, I need to get my words right here, uh, a new class of battleships at this time, or did that take place after the fact? Or were they working on the New Jersey class, or was that uh, something that happened after the battle? They were already working on it. Uh, one of the rare things uh, Congress had done to really uh, you know, improve American military readiness was a decision in 1936 to, to build a two-ocean Navy. Um, because, as you know, you know, you want to you want a new modern navy. That doesn't just happen overnight. You got to plan years ahead, and the shipbuilding takes a long time. It's expensive, it's kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, already as of 1936, there were plans on the books to to have a new class of battleships. Many of those that were at Pearl Harbor uh, were, were starting to get anti- antiquated. Um, there was a push for more aircraft carriers from the the aviation folks on the you know in the navy. Um, so already you were seeing this, and, and and I should say too, in a more immediate sense, um, as, as you probably know, you know, in 1940 and then in 1941, uh, the Congress had barely passed the first ever peacetime draft in, in American history, and so um, you know already we had this kind of short of war mobilization um, of the armed forces for war, um, and the Navy then is just just one part of that, arguably maybe the most expensive part of it. Which, which, if you are a conspiracy theorist, or you're somebody who just like sees all this stuff, and you go, all they needed was a spark to light the fumes that were already accumulating. What, what, in what is way, your, your response to that? The U.S. really, you know, in, in a way, was at war already before Pearl Harbor. In in this sense, um, that the Lend-Lease program that uh, that the Congress had passed after Roosevelt's election to the presidency for the third time in 1940, uh, and with a with a democratically controlled Congress, his party, um, but a growing consensus that on both sides of the partisan divide that the U.S. needed to at least do something to help the hard-pressed allies at that stage while not necessarily sending our own troops overseas. But what had happened is that as the U.S. decides to be, as Roosevelt put it, the great arsenal of democracy, helping supply the British and so on and so forth, um, this leads to to what uh, military folks nowadays call mission creep. Um, In other words, how are we going to get all this stuff over to to Britain and wherever else? Um, So um, the Royal Navy is hard-pressed, and so the United States Navy then sort of picks up some of that slack and helps escort some of these ships or move some of the material, um, at least as far as Iceland. And so the, the Roosevelt administration had already announced that um, the, the U.S. was going to consider those sea lanes to be theirs. And uh, so the Navy was already fighting a war with German U-boats in the fall of 1941. It's just that neither the German government nor the U.S. government um, felt that they really wanted to formally declare war at this point. Um, so, uh, and, and the and the... Pacific side, uh, the negotiations between the United States and Japan were, were so tense because of the, the embargo and because of Japan's aggressiveness in China. And uh, ironically enough, what had really accelerated the conflict there was um, the Japanese occupying first the northern part of Vietnam, but then all of Vietnam in reaction to the collapse of France in 1940 and the inability of the French to control their soon-to-be former colony. Um, 
that the, the Americans sort of react to that with the embargo. So you could say in a narrow sense, the Americans go to war with Japan over Vietnam, though they don't really care about Vietnam as such. They care about the, you know, the balance of power. The balance the of Asian power. Continent and what that means. Yeah. So that's right. So, yeah. So there wasn't any kind of, you know, shooting going on between U.S. and Japanese, um, you know, during the weeks leading up to Pearl Harbor. But there was a sense that uh, that war was probably imminent, at least for the military folks in the know. Um, for the average citizen, though, you know, if you kept in touch with the, the headlines at the time, you'd know that there were negotiations going on with Japan. But you might not have sensed the urgency of the crisis that was brewing. And then, too, you know, one of the, the uh, statements that really stuck out of my mind was when President Roosevelt said, our righteous might. When I hear things like that, you know, to me, that's a code word. Um, you know, because now we're starting to talk about beliefs, religious beliefs, and we know that the Japanese held, held a very different religious belief than Americans. And so, you know, that there's that hidden, you know, as Christians, we're getting ready to go out there, we're going to do the righteous thing because we are doing this in the name of God. And, you know, that's always a good way to rile up the, the base. <laughs> you know, it's been riling up the base ever since, you know, when you start to break down, you know, people's religious beliefs against people who have different religious beliefs. I mean, and that's a, I know that's a far stretching thing, but again, you know, you have to listen to words that are being used because those are codes that somebody is listening to and understands. Well, in this, in this case, you know, Roosevelt doesn't necessarily, you know, allude to scripture or any kind of religious no. sort of reference, but he does say, he is saying quite clearly that the U.S., uh, you know, has a kind of righteous cause to fight. Exactly. And, and, and where, he, where he's coming from on that is that at the time he makes that speech, he knows that something on the order of 2,403 Americans have just been killed, um, in, in his view, in cold blood. Um, and so this, you know, this is certainly a rallying kind of thing, not just for him and his administration, but I think for all Americans. Exactly. And that's always um, been know, the rallying thing. You know, I mean, even when you go back to 9-11, you know, just about 2,500 people were killed in 9-11. You know, but again, it's the thing that that righteous might. We got to take this. We've been attacked. Boom. We're going after those uh, those Muslims over there. And, you, you know, I just see it as it's a, it's always a case of uh, of an uh, of an us as a Christian nation against somebody else that's not considered to be a Christian nation. And. You know, it creates that righteous feeling of God is on our side. Does that make sense? Well, sure, sure. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know that Roosevelt is really making a, a Christian argument in 1941. He's making an American argument that the United States has been attacked in, in a, what he believes is a very treacherous way, and many Americans did too, and they felt that that had to be, you know, had to be— uh, uh, defeated, dealt with, however you want, however you want to call it. But um, it is this kind of unique moment when you see, no matter where you are in the political divide, you know you're you're pretty much on board with that. There was only one dissenting vote. That's right. Um, when he asked for the declaration of war that day, it was Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, right. who was uh, a suffragette and also a pacifist. So she stuck to her beliefs, but she didn't even try to run for re-election in 1942 because she knew she would have no chance. Um, absolutely. Yeah, that, absolutely. You know, so so how does the uh, how does the U.S. respond and recover after uh, December 7th uh, as it relates to kind of getting their footing back? I, and I would be curious as to uh, if you've investigated the Japanese 
perspective and response to the Americans' response. That sounds, sounds like double talk, but you know, when you when you see you know you see the movie that I I, I fear we've awakened a sleeping giant. You know, Tora Tora Tora. You see that movie and a realization on some people in the Japanese uh, Empire and, and Navy that oh my gosh, you know, I think we've really screwed up here. Um, you know, how does the U.S. recover from this after uh, December seventh? Yeah, the U.S., of course, is going to then kick in and have a massive mobilization. Uh, Roosevelt is going to take out his declaration of war. Um, he really, though, he probably no wanted to, to be in the war in Europe more so because he felt that Germany was the greater threat. Right. So there was an uncomfortable few days after Pearl Harbor when he didn't really you know, feel as though he could ask for a declaration of war and that the, the public would be for that. But Hitler lets him off the hook by declaring war on, on the U.S. And, uh, uh, and then Mussolini soon followed for Italy. But uh, the Japanese, in leading up to Pearl Harbor and deciding to do this, had uh, had had met in late September the the, uh, the highest-ranking Japanese and, and Hirohito, and they had uh, tried to decide among three options. Option one was basically to do what the Americans wanted, uh, to, to, to get out of China, uh, to back down and start to open the flow of resources from the U.S. again. Uh, and they were never going to do that, given their their uh, viewpoint at that stage and their policy. Option two was attack the Soviet Union, which at that point was hard-pressed by a German invasion, which is sort of the really kind of the key moment of World War II when Germany attacks the Soviet Union in the summer of 41. Um, and that was, you know, they considered that because they could have gotten some oil and timber resources in Siberia and near Mongolia and so on and so forth. Uh, option three was really what the Navy wanted, which is to attack not just the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, but um, the, all sorts of targets all over the, the Pacific, including the Dutch East Indies, so on and so forth. And so Japan had basically elected uh, by the evening of Pearl Harbor to fight a two-front war, one war uh, against China on the Asian mainland, uh, which is sort of the Army's war, and then a war against uh, the United States and uh, European colonial powers throughout the Pacific uh, and, and the islands of the Pacific. So, um, so the U.S. response at this stage is uh, to, to play for time and to, to kick in with its massive industrial capacity. Recruiting stations were packed with young men wanting to, to volunteer already by the next morning, by the Monday morning after Pearl Harbor. Um, but, but eventually you're going to have a much wider reaching draft. About two-thirds of those who served in the war uh, were draftees. About 15 million-plus Americans served in the war eventually. So um, Pearl Harbor kind of, I, I always like to say, sort of undercuts the Japanese strategic object from the beginning um, because they're predicating the whole strategy on a short war with the United States, uh, knockout punch, but really kind of through this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, they guarantee that the war will not be of that nature because the American public is so four square behind defeating Japan um, that the Japanese kind of undercut it. Now, there's that, that quote you mentioned is often attributed to Admiral Yamamoto, who was you know the mastermind of the, the Pearl Harbor attack. And there's no evidence he actually said that, but there's a lot of evidence he probably would have felt that um, because he he knew a lot about the U.S. He had served here. He didn't want war with the U.S. Um, and he understood, as many of the, uh, the high-ranking Japanese officers did, they're not stupid. They understood that uh, when it came to the tail of the tape, they were going to be on the wrong end of it. And so they knew they had bitten off a lot uh, that they might not be able to chew. Wow. There's a lot to think about. But it's interesting, like you said, that the very next day, you know, that the implementation of the draft 
you know, which we are still talking about today. You know, we can always look at what what actually ended up being achieved. You know, just like after 9-11, we had Homeland Security formed. So, you know, we look at these situations and they, they do, they, you know, those are situations that always grab our hearts. And what they do is they attack our emotions so that we are led to to do something that the government wants us to do that maybe we would not have done if we did not have that emotional trigger. Well, certainly those kind of events will trigger emotions. <laughs> well, they do. And if, and if, and, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you look what... But uh, I think ever since the, the United States um, has been sort of terrified and preoccupied in the idea of being on the wrong end of a first strike like that. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that helps lead to a complete reorganization of the armed forces, the, the creation of the Department of Defense, the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency, um, you know, on and on it goes. Like you said, yeah. after 9-11, the creation of Homeland Security, trying to react to these things and, and try and make sure it doesn't happen again, which is a lot better, easier said than done. So if you had to sum up uh, some lessons learned from uh, 77 years ago, uh, how would you, uh, what things would you say and, and how would you describe what they are? Well, the one I see as a military historian, uh, so this tends to be my focus, is much better inter-service cooperation uh, and coordination, really. is. You really see with Pearl Harbor, the Army and the Navy working across purposes, quite amateurishly and quite inexcusably. Um, and it's, it's really part of what is behind the, the uh, failure of the combat air patrol, the, 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 uh, the lack of understanding of how to read the radar correctly, the communications issues, things like that, um, point out the fact that you just can't afford the luxury of this, this kind of silly uh, kind of cross-purposes rivalry. And, and uh, I do think we've come a long way from that by this day and age. From a uh, statesman diplomatic point of view, um, <laughs> I mean... There's so much ground to cover there uh, of all the, the moves that both sides could have done differently, that these are two countries. And when you really look at the full sweep of their relations um, in the last 150 some odd years, most of that time they've gotten along really, really well, if not been close allies and friends. And yet you had this tragic moment. We might argue, you know, four and a half years or a decade moment, whatever it is, um, in which they fought one of the most barbarous wars ever uh, on record. Um, it was a terrible tragedy. And, and the, the more I study it, the more I see the similarities between the two sides. And so you can say that, that there was a kind of uh, a misfire among the statesmen. Japan was, was far too aggressive. And the United States, partially because of its position of weakness diplomatically and militarily in Asia, was in very little position to shape Japanese behavior as, it would, as American statesmen would have hoped. Um, and so, you know, you then you see this kind of tragic kind of lockstep toward war, um, which I don't see as anything inevitable. But it's, it's only my opinion. Um, but I, I do think that there's some good lessons to learn there about the importance of at least having a, um, uh, you know, uh, some level of military strength to draw upon as a deterrent um, and, and a better understanding of the motives of what could be your adversary at that point. Great comments. You've been listening to uh, John McManus, award-winning professor, author, and military historian at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's uh, author of 12, soon-to-be-13 books, 
And John, we greatly appreciate you coming on today and talking about um, 77 years ago on December 7th at Pearl Harbor and giving us a lot of different kinds of insight. And I really appreciate that you're a historian and a military historian and that your expertise is in World War II. Exactly. It's been extremely fascinating and uh, really open to uh, some future conversations about some other items that we have kind of uh, locked in our back closet here that we like to uh, we want to talk about. So hope that you would consider that. Yeah, John, you've sure. been excellent. And I tell you, I hope that our listeners have found this to be as intriguing as I have, because uh, I love historians and I love history. And it's always good to be able to go back and and kind of look at the, I, I guess, the, the more succinct, you know, non-emotional, more logical points that go into our history and the making of our history. So I just really have enjoyed this conversation a lot. Sure, me too. I appreciate the opportunity to be on, and uh, sure, anytime. John, thanks very much. Hope you have a great weekend. All right, thanks. You too. Bye now. Bye. Wow, Arnold. I mean, did he give us a lot to have to think about? You know, I want to go up to the library and check out some of these books, and um, obviously one at a time, because I'm sure they're, they're full of of information. He's got uh, Grunts, the American Infantry Combat Experience, World War II through Iraq. He's got the 7th Inf- Infantry Combat in an Age of Terror, Korea through the present. And one of the things that intrigued me is he's approaching it, like he said, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, from the people who are actually in the infantry, who are actually fighting and doing doing the battles on a, on a regular basis and getting their stories. Um, so very, very fascinating. And the fact that he's a St. Louis guy, the fact that he's, you know, um, two hours down the road, actually an hour and 45 minutes down the road on 44 at Rolla. Depending on how quickly, how fast you drive. Yeah, and that's driving about (laughs) 71 miles an hour. Oh, 71 miles an hour. Okay. Uh, uh, So, and that he's sought after by uh, national radio programs, uh, CNN, Fox, C-SPAN, Discovery, National Geographic, Smithsonian History, PBS. It. He was actually, I didn't tell you, he was the historical advisor for the best-selling book and documentary, Salinger. Oh, wow. The latter of which appeared nationwide in theaters and on PBS's American Masters series. Well, well you know, but he still, none of that compares to his... Being on KWRHLP <laughs> 92.9. Nothing. But, you know, I, I, and again, I love the conversation because it does help us to tie... Not just that particular incident, but we have to look at that total. You know, if we start to just even look at going all the way back to, gosh, man, we can go. You know, the more I think about wars, I was like, okay, uh, French Revolutionary War. You know, and we start to really kind of take and, and bring those steps forward. We will see that all of these things are connected. And it's just a matter of, I guess, a choice that was made. But none of this is none of this has happened in a vacuum. Oh, no, no. You know, yeah. it's like even when I lived in Panama and I was doing some research on the Panama Canal and we think of the Panama Canal today as, you know, just ships and, and you know, it was an easy way. Man, when I started doing the research and started going back to, you know, how Spain, you know, of course, they were looting from Peru and they stealing all the gold and coming up through the isthmus. And now we needed an easier way to do it. You know, and then you start to look at how the French Revolution stopped them from building the canal. You know, <laughs> you know, you go on and on and on and on. Every country has its own uh, thought, process, thought on, process on what they want to control. That's right. And even with the Panama Canal, it's taking it over in 1904. It being ready by 1914. The first ship that went through the Panama Canal was a warship. That's right. 
it, you know, those are the kind of things that when you start to pull those things together, it goes, huh, this is a more interesting puzzle than I thought. And we still didn't even get to the whole point of the bomb. No, because the bomb was another one that was uh, right on the uh, the cusp. That's right. And that, you know, here were Germans in America building the bomb and we use it on the people of color, of course, not the people that would, if they have taken over the world, we'd have, you and I might not have been here, me because I'm black and you because you're slightly balding. <laughs> <laughs> she, she had to get that one in there. That would have been like looked at as a defect. Yeah, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with him? <laughs> we don't want to make sure, we want to make sure he doesn't produce any more bald men. Okay. <laughs> Well, you know, I said last week that I wanted to uh, read some Hanukkah and Christmas jokes. Oh, boy. Okay. Do we so, need a disclaimer? Uh, no, I don't okay. think so. Okay, good. So. I don't want anybody to be offended. So, uh, no, I want to try to be, you know, equal. Um, equal offense, equally offensive? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Let's just offend everyone, huh? Yeah. yeah. No, uh, why did the boy put his Hanukkah money in the freezer? Oh, boy. He wanted cold, hard cash. <laughs> ah, yeah, that would make sense. That one's really, uh, really well done. That was very well done. Um, my mother once gave me two sweaters for Hanukkah. The next time we visited, I made sure to wear one. And as we entered her home, instead of the expected smile, she said, Aaron, what's the matter? You didn't like the other one? Oh. I had to think, though. It had to circle. Which hand is it better to light the menorah with? Neither. It's best to light it with a candle. Yeah, I... <laughs> I like this one. Um, during the first day of Hanukkah, two elderly Jewish men were sitting in a wonderful deli, frequented almost exclusively by a Jewish population in New York City. They were talking amongst themselves in Yiddish. A Chinese waiter who'd only been in New York for a year, came up in influent Yiddish with a perfect accent, asked them if everything was okay and if they were enjoying the holiday. The men were dumbfounded. Where did he ever learn such perfect Yiddish, they asked each other. After they paid the bill, they asked the restaurant manager, an old friend of theirs, where did your waiter learn to speak such fantastic Yiddish? The manager looked around, quietly leaned in so no one else could hear and said, shh, he thinks we're teaching him English. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I do. Um, what's St. Nicholas's favorite measurement in the metric system? The centimeter. Oh, it took me a moment. It took me a moment, but I got that yeah, one. It's still the taking me a moment. The Santa. Centimeter. What's red and white and falls down chimneys? A Santa Klutz. <laughs> I was gonna go with the with the something with the reindeer, but yeah. yeah well, speaking don't... of that, which of Santa's reindeer has the worst manners? Rudolph, of course. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. That one is still circling. I don't get it. Rudolph. Rudolph. Oh, Ru oh man. You know, so, you tell some of the corniest jokes. So people act like the North Pole and the South Pole are exactly the same, but really, there's a whole world of difference, <laughs> difference between them. You're so right. <laughs> and they're really very, very different. All right, last one. Fa-la-la-la-la. <laughs> Thank goodness. What did the peanut butter say to the grape on Christmas? Tis the season to be jelly. <laughs> Where do you 
get this stuff from? You mean this stuff is actually online yes. somewhere? Yes, it is. It's Reader's Digest. Oh, re- oh my goodness. Laughter, the best medicine. It is. And Reader's Digest, those were the cutest little books. My mom had 10,000 of them. <laughs> That's a lot of them. Those little bitty ones. That's right. Those <laughs> the condensed bitty ones. ones. Yeah, my folks used to get those all the time. All the time. You know, you are so right. I had almost forgotten about Reader's Digest. Yeah, they had the laughter, the best medicine, and then they had another kind of funny, uh, sane thing in they there. They did. Those are really the only things I ever read. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had the short stories. That's correct. You know. And we're short on time right now, so don't forget when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. This is KWRHLP 92.9 FM for In Tune, studio manager Christopher Daisy, co-host Ellie Wharton. I'm Arnold Stricker. We thank you for joining us today. Until next time, walk worthy and let your light shine. <laughs> <laughs>